Well, back in 1996, IBM wanted to have a face-off between their deep blue chess computer and this guy you see on the screen, Gary Kasparov. He was the leading chess champion of the world. Now, this whole idea that uh, man versus computer back in 1996, actually this first face-off, it was the human... Gary Kasparov that won against the computer. Somehow that makes me feel old. <laughs> that, that computers were just that slow in 96. But they demanded a rematch. They made a few tweaks to the computer and they changed a few of the, the I don't know, the, the way the software was written and so on. And so in 97, actually this picture I believe is from 97 because if you look behind, it says the rematch. And so they played back and forth and back and forth. Now I'm not a huge chess individual. I barely know the rules of the game. However, it has been said throughout time that chess is a great uh, way to understand an individual's wits and their mental capacity and to think several moves in advance and the complexity and so on and so forth. And we've even been warned not to, to get involved in chess, the time that it takes and gambling and all that kind of thing. But the idea here was man versus machine. And in 97, at the rematch, the computer won against the greatest. Then there was some back and forth and back and forth in the years that followed until in 2006, the computer that seems to run our lives today was the clear winner. In fact, I don't believe anybody has ever beat the computer since 2006. Why? Well, it gets a little bit complicated. The ELO rating system, which is a method of calculating the relative skills levels of players in zero-sum games such as chess, rates computers at 450 points higher than the best human chess player, if you know what ELO is, even though I just told you, and I still don't know. The point is, computers know a whole lot more, and they can see farther into the future, and they can predict this move, well, I can recover by doing these moves and those moves, and they just literally outthink the best human mind and strategy at the game. What does that mean for you and me today? Well, it means the days of being the computer at chess are over. It is what one might call an exercise in futility. Because the, the computer can reason things through a whole lot better, is a smarter player, a smarter mover, and we just simply cannot think that far ahead. So what is the point in me putting this picture on the screen this morning? Friends, compared to God, we are all bad chess players. You think, well, I make good moves. God makes better moves. I'm going to make a bad move, and this will throw off the other. God can compensate for that, too. God is the computer, if you will, in this very limited illustration. He can outthink every move and every maneuver on the entire universe. In this complex thing, have you ever thought, stopped to think, how does God orchestrate things in such a way that these various prayers are answered in such a web of complexity? Who can reason through all of that? 
but the God of the universe. And of course, like I said, there's differences. God's not just in it to win, but is driven by love and compassion. And when he wins, we win. But to use the illustration, God in his sovereignty sees so many moves ahead that his plans and purposes always prevail. Now, that's not to say that we still don't have freedom of choice. We do, but some way, somehow, God's plans and purposes, his overarching plan and will, will be accomplished, despite what choices you or I make. I think that's why the devil is so angry all the time, because whenever he works in a particularly clever bit of mischief, God uses it to serve his own righteous purposes. Have you ever seen that done? So does God use wicked people as his tools? Well, God gives freedom of choice, and we can choose to do evil, but then by his sovereignty and power, God uses his own freedom to create goodness out of that evil. So in the long run, God's purposes always prevail. I mean, I believe that's how God can predict prophecy so accurately because God's plans and purposes always prevail. Well, what if this person wouldn't have been willing to be a prophet? He would have raised up somebody else. What if this person wouldn't have been the messenger? What if this person had said no? What if God says, I have a million ways to answer your prayers and to answer the things that I have prophesied? That is the sovereignty, the power, the authority of the Almighty God. And so we're going to begin today a series on the life of Joseph. And in the life of Joseph, we find all kinds of things that we can extrapolate. There's jealousy, there's deceit, there's plots of murder, lying, cover-up, slavery, temptation, abandonment, patience, promotions, testing, forgiveness, reconciliation, reunion, and integrity. But above it all is the sovereignty of God. Yesterday, today, and forever. And sovereignty is simply a big word used to say the power and authority of God to accomplish his purposes. And so at the heart of the story of Joseph, we see God's ability to fulfill his covenant despite the character flaws of his chosen family, despite obstacles along the way that occur, God is able to bring good out of evil, to bring light out of darkness. So when we see bad things happening in our church or in our world or in our own families, we can be assured that God's plans and his purposes will prevail. We have examples of that. Job 42, 2 says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Job 42, 2. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand. I will do all that I please. Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but what does the rest of it say? But it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. 
you believe that? Is God helpless in this thing called the great controversy? Or is he the computer that even the devil is no match for? So as I said, we're going to look at the story of Joseph. But before we delve into Joseph, I believe there's some significant backstory we need to look at. And so let's, as quickly as we can, turn to Genesis chapter 12. Here we have God making his covenant with Abraham. I hope you brought your Bibles. I love to hear the sound of the pages turning. We're in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Pastor Skeet made reference to this last week. But this is a pretty remarkable set of verses. And if we're not careful, we could stay here longer than we have time this morning. But Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, it says, I, this is God speaking, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Sorry, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is remarkable. Through you, Abraham, I will bless and touch every family on the face of this earth. It's easy for us to question how is this going to happen? Abraham presumably asked the same question because for 25 years he does not have an heir. In the meantime, he tries to create his own heir through Hagar. Finally, Isaac is born to Sarah in her old age. And Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob is told by God that as the younger brother, he will receive the birthright. And we're just going very quickly through some of this history we have in Genesis but to, similar to Grandpa Abraham trying to produce his own heir and his father Isaac lying on several occasions that Rebecca, his wife, was in fact his sister, which is a half-truth, if you will. Now it is Jacob who takes matters into his own hands, as we see here in this picture, Jacob the deceiver. So in Isaac's old age, he deceives him into giving him the birthright. As a result, you remember the story, Jacob has to flee into the wilderness never to see his parents again. And then you recall Jacob works for Laban and pledges to work for seven years for his new love, Rachel. But then the deceiver is deceived and tricked into marrying Leah, the older sister. So what does Jacob do? You know the story well. He works yet another seven years. How romantic. For Rachel, his true love. And from here, Jacob fathers many children. But then as his clan continues to grow larger and larger and larger, he has to flee again in secret. And it's in that time that he wrestles with God, if you will. But we have to keep in mind now all the children that he has. In fact, I believe there are 11 of them that are mentioned. One's a daughter. The rest are all sons. But Leah starts off first and has several children. And then Rachel, she is barren. And so she says, here, take my maiden. And then Leah says that. And she's already no longer bearing children. Take my maiden. And so now we have three ladies that are producing people for Jacob. And we have a whole slew of children. And that's when the complaint comes. And so they steal away from Laban secretly. And it's on this journey that he hears that his brother Esau, the one that he tricked out of the birthright, 
is coming to meet him with 400 men. And Jacob cries out to the Lord. He wrestles with God, and his name is changed from Jacob deceiver to Israel, struggles with God. But that doesn't mean the dysfunction in this family has come to an end. There's still plenty of dysfunction to go around. If you flip over to Genesis chapter 34, we read a part of Scripture that we'd rather just not read altogether. First two verses of Genesis chapter 34. It says, Now Dinah, the one daughter that's mentioned, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. Some of your translations say, took her by force. Today we would say, he raped her. Yet we find in this account, if you will, that Jacob doesn't do much of anything. It's not until the brothers decide to raise up and do something, but I don't know if what they do is exactly what is in line to have done. We could get into some of the specifics, but basically they go and annihilate all the men of that city to preserve, if you will, and then they take their wives and their children and their livestock. Yet we don't see Jacob upset about Dinah being raped or the revenge of his sons as much as the fact that he will, it will give him bad PR in the land. We read about that in verse 30. What are people going to think about me, he says. In fact, we read that there. Chapter 34, verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. Where's his focus? His daughter has been raped, and he's worried about how this makes him look. Seems a little dysfunctional. So we have deception in leaving Cana, a past deception coming back to haunt him with Esau, a rape of his daughter, the revenge of his sons, and then we get to Genesis 35, verse 16. Just let your eyes drop down here. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. And as we continue to read on, Rachel passes away with having Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin. So now add tragedy to all the dysfunction. And then on the heels of this tragedy, we read in Genesis chapter 35, verse 21, Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adair. And it happened when Israel dwelt in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel, who is Jacob, heard about it. So this is not rape, this is incest. And the dysfunction continues. And in case we think that maybe Jacob does not find out about it, we're told right here, and Israel heard about it, period. And there's virtually no mention of what Reuben has done until Jacob is on his deathbed. Nothing. 
His daughter is raped, virtually nothing except how is this going to impact me? There's incest in his own family. Again, nothing. Jacob, you're a passive father here. Things are happening right under your nose. Where are you? Aren't you going to do something? Aren't you going to say something? This is your tribe, your family, your children. But the Bible is very silent. This idea, the enemy is more subtle, sorry, no enemy is more subtle than passivity. When parents are passive, now they may eventually discipline, but by then, the delayed reaction is often carried out in anger. Have you ever seen this before? Maybe you played it out. Passivity waits and waits until finally, when it can wait no longer, it comes down with both feet. And when this happens, children are not disciplined, they are brutalized. Passivity, for one, is inconsistent. I did this the other day, and Dad didn't do anything. I did it again, and he didn't say anything again. Why is he just flipping out on me now? This doesn't make sense. And if you look at our country, there is an epidemic, I feel, of passive fathers and passive mothers. Fathers who let their sons have smartphones wide open to the wiles of the internet simply because all their friends have it and they don't want to be uncool. So the father's passive and says, okay. Passive mothers who bargain with their daughters in an attempt to be their best friend instead of being their mother and spiritual mentor. You see, passive parents let their children wear immodest clothing and they say, well, what's to be done? Passive parents have a hard time saying no. Passive parents let the TV raise their children. Passive parents never enforce consequences. Passive parents never expect much from their children. Passive parents say things like, they don't do it right. It'll be faster if I just do it myself. And so there's no training, there's no discipling. Just go back and be quiet, watch some TV, I'll do it. And as a result, passive parents don't make their children do house chores, work in the yard, get a job. I don't know if you've noticed, but passive parents certainly are not going to address hard issues. Sometimes passive parents say things like, it's just a stage. I think they'll grow out of it. So in the meantime, I'm just going to do nothing. Passive parents expect the school system and the church to instill moral integrity in their children. Maybe I'm wrong, but I fear there's an epidemic in this country, in this nation, of passive parents. Just give them a device. I also believe there's an epidemic of passive grandparents. Society likes to tell us that to be a good grandparent... You just let your grandkids do whatever you want to do. You just, you butt out. You don't try and get involved too deeply in their life or what they're doing. You're just kind of like this fixture on the wall to look pretty and occasionally watch the kids while we go out to eat. That's what society says the role of grandparent is. When the biblical role of grandparent is to pass on a spiritual heritage. 
Did you know that after parents, grandparents come in second when it comes to influence? Ahead of teachers and coaches and friends and pastors and religious leaders, grandparents are second after parents. Top disciplinary problems in the 1940s. You ready for them? Talking out of turn. What's the matter with you? Don't interrupt. Unless I call on you, you have to raise your hand. This is serious. Chewing gum. If I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, no gum in this classroom. Get rid of it. Making noise. They're goofing off again. They're not paying attention. Running in the halls. Now this is just, I mean, someone could get hurt. They're running in the halls, Ivan. Cutting in line. Well, I was thirsty. Stop it. Littering. That doesn't make for a nice society. Just don't do it. 2010s, if that's what you call it. Well, <clears throat> drug and alcohol abuse. Cutting. Helps me feel a sense of relief, a sense of control and empowerment. Bullying is a big thing in this society, in this day and age. Assault is another. Depression. Suicide. Pornography. Again, huge. And theft. Hmm. Am I the only one that sees the difference in these two sides? The average child spends seven hours a day with media today and five minutes a day with dad. Friends, passivity is an enemy. I'll just let somebody else deal with it. It's not my problem. I don't want to get involved. It's too complicated. I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know what questions they're going to ask. They'll just have to figure it out. Google it. It's not going to work. Passivity is an enemy. Psalm 71, 17 and 18. Since my youth, God... You have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvelous deeds. Even when I am old and gray, grandparents, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. Grandparents, your job is not over. You may have retired from work, but you have not retired from parenting your grandkids. Now, granted, you can, I suppose, you know, work against the parents. You need to be on the same page, but you certainly are not supposed to check out. Tommy's having some attention issues at school. Hey, why don't we spend more time together? Why don't we invest in him? Why don't we go fishing? Why don't we talk a little bit? And maybe dad can. Maybe he's busy working and all the rest. But as a grandparent, you can step in to that void. Psalm 78 Verse 4, who will not hide them from their descendants? We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. To the next generation. Again, the role. And so by the time we get to Joseph, you may be thinking, why all this background? I thought this was a series on Joseph. We haven't even mentioned Joseph. Well, I believe it's important to understand the deception, the intrigue, the anger, the rebellion, the rivalry, the out-of-control jealousy that were rampant within the ranks of Jacob's boys, all of which were characteristics that had been displayed by none other 
than their father. This was the home in which young Joseph was born. It was a pretty pathetic environment, I'd say, to raise a young boy. But yes, we're going to look now at Joseph. So if you still have your Bibles open, let's turn to Genesis chapter 37, the part of the story that you know a little bit better, perhaps, or at least are used to hearing about Joseph. Verse 2, chapter 37 of Genesis. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph being how old? 17 years old. Was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah. That was the maid of Rachel. And the sons of Zilpah. That was the maid of Leah. His father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel or Jacob formerly Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. So he had a favorite. This is from his favorite wife. This is the oldest. Perhaps even Joseph is easier to raise. And so for whatever reason, he is drawn to Joseph. They seem to be in cahoots. They get a bad report and so on and so forth. But he's going to do something special to honor Joseph. And you know this part of the story as well. He made, last part of verse 3, him a tunic of many colors. In essence, I'm going to give the youngest, I mean, there's still Benjamin, but compared to everybody else, he is very much the youngest. I'm going to give him a place of honor and prominence. He's going to be a manager, if you will. He's not going to be out there getting dirty in this tunic. This is going to be a very fine piece of apparel that is going to show who's in charge. It's Joseph. Verse 4, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they what? Hated. hated. That's a strong word. They hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaf stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brother said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Verse 9. Then he dreamed still another dream. And told it to his brothers and said, look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, the 11 stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream you've dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him. But his father kept the matter in mind. He makes a comment but that's as, really as far as it goes. Then verse 12, we have a scene change. The brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. This was the place that they annihilated all the males, if you recall. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. I don't know where they are. I don't know why they're, they're taking so long. They should be back by now. Joseph, will you go check on your brothers in this land that maybe is a little hostile towards them? 
Now, we've already had the word hated, and hated even more used, but for whatever reason, Jacob seems to be naive to all of this. I know, this will be a good idea. They're off in the wilderness. I'll send you in your nice robe, your three-piece suit, in the business car, to go check up on your brothers and see how they're doing out in the middle of nowhere. Is this a good idea, Dad? Or are you simply out of touch? So, Israel said to Joseph, verse 14, Then he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks, and bring back word to me. So he sent him out to the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. Now let's pause right there. Who gave the promise to Abraham? God did. Who gave the dreams to Joseph? God did. We're about to see something else. Now a certain man, verse 15, found him. And there he was wandering in the field. What's this guy doing out here in a three-piece suit? And the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? So he said, I'm seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flock. And the man said, They have departed from here. For I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. Who provided this random guy to be out in the field? Perhaps if he wasn't there, Joseph would have returned home and said, I looked and I didn't find anything. He traveled 50 miles to get there. But here's this nameless individual who says, oh yeah, I think I saw your brothers. You have to travel another 15 miles to Dothan. Yeah, okay. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. And now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired, it's a scary word, against him to kill him. Then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Come therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. I have another great idea. Let's murder this brother that we hate so much. Here is our chance. But Reuben speaks up in verse 21 and says, let's not kill him. That's a bad idea. And he's thinking fast on his feet and he says, I know, let's just take him captive. Is he trying to regain face with his father after what he has done before? I don't know. But verse 23, so it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic. That's the first thing that goes. The tunic of many colors that was on him. And then they took him and cast him into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. They'd build these cisterns to catch the rainwater. And all year long they'd draw out of it. But at this point in time in the year it was empty. Perfect. Throw him to the bottom. And as they sat down to eat a meal, obviously they're quite remorseful of what they've done. We got him. Let's eat. They lifted their eyes, and look, there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. Now, they were on the right path, if you will, for this to happen. But again, we have the dreams, we have this random man, we have these Ishmaelites that just happened to come by at the right time. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, 
And so it says in verse 28, they sold him for 20 shekels of silver, the price of a handicapped slave. Now we've profited out of this whole thing and brother's gone and we didn't have to kill him. Well, what are we going to tell dad? I know what we'll tell dad. So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats and dipped in the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors and they brought it to their father and said, we found this. Deceiving the deceiver. We found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? Stupid question. And he recognized it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And now the Midianites had sold him into Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. What would that be like to be Joseph at that moment? We don't have anything in Scripture that says Joseph did anything wrong. You might think, well, maybe he was naive in sharing his dream to his brother. He should have just kept it to himself. Maybe he shouldn't have paraded this tunic, you know, maybe whatever. But we don't have anything that's conclusive that he did wrong. And here he is in his father's favor, enjoying the good life, if you will. And in a moment, his life is changed. No longer does he look like anybody of importance but rather he's beat up, bloodied, kind of left for dead, sold. Maybe they had to sell him as a handicapped slave because after they beat him up, I don't know. But he finds himself with a bunch of people he doesn't know going to a land that he does not know and he's looking back over the hills wondering, am I ever going to see my father again? Is this it for me? What is going to be my future? What will be my outcome? 17 years old. Bitterly, I imagine he wept at the thought of his fathers. I imagine he got frustrated in his tears as he thought, my own brothers did this to me. They hated me that much. And he's looking at, and he's seeing the, the, the looks on their faces and the anger with which they struck him and how his circumstances literally changed overnight. And now he's despised and helpless and a slave, alone, friendless, what would be his lot in this strange land in which he's going? And my question for you is, are you in exile today? Are you too depressed or discouraged? Are there times that you feel alone and abandoned? And if so, I challenge you, as Joseph reminds us throughout this story, to trust in the sovereignty of of God, in his power, in his authority, in the one who sees the end from the beginning, in the one whose overarching purpose always prevails. Because as we continue with the story of Joseph, we see that God is able to bring good out of evil to bring light out of darkness. God can use dysfunctional families to accomplish his purposes. In the midst of rape and incest, 
deception, jealousy, murderous plots, Jesus reaches down and says, that's my boy. And he gives him dreams. He sends him this random guy to help him find his brothers. He sends a caravan. And in the midst of what seems like a hopeless situation, in God's sovereignty, he works out his plans and purposes for good. Not just for Joseph, but for humanity. Patriarchs and Prophets 2.13 says this, For a time Joseph gave himself up to uncontrolled grief and terror. But in the providence of God, even this experience was to be a blessing to him. He had learned in a few hours that which years might not otherwise have taught him. Then his thoughts turned to his father's God. Now all these precious lessons came vividly before him, and Joseph believed that the God of his fathers would be his God. He then and there gave himself fully to the Lord, and he prayed that the keeper of Israel would be with him in the land of exile. Friends, that's how you survive exile. His soul thrilled with the high resolve to prove himself true to God under all circumstances to act as become a subject of the king of heaven. He would serve the Lord with undivided heart. He would meet the trials of his lot with fortitude and perform every duty with fidelity. That is what he chose to do on that ride to Egypt. I don't get it. I don't understand. I don't know how this happened. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know how you can use this for good. But I am choosing this moment to serve you with an undivided heart. One day's experience had been the turning point in Joseph's life. Its terrible calamity had transformed him from a petted child to a man, thoughtful, courageous, and self-possessed. In the midst of your crisis, will you trust in the sovereignty, the power, the authority of Almighty God, who's far bigger than any trial we can face? There's a picture of my dad's parents, Earl and Malva Wright. The year was 1970. Earl had just finished his doctorate. He was just a few years older than me. And they had accepted a teaching position at PUC, Pacific Union College. My father was 19 at the time. His sister was just a few years older, I think maybe a year and a half older. So they were both enrolled at PUC. They were in class, and it was a usual week in March. And my dad had spoken with his dad just the night before, and they had planned to get together as a family to have evening uh, supper together. You know, they all had separate schedules and class schedules, but it'll work out okay. Let's come together tomorrow night and we'll eat. But last minute, my grandpa Earl was called. It wasn't a planned thing. It wasn't part of his schedule, but they wanted him to do some recruitment. And so they said, why don't you hop on this airplane and go over here? You'll be back before lunch. It won't be a big deal. And so he agreed, no problem. And he got on the, the plane. It was a foggy day on March 11 of 1970, and the pilot was not instrument trained, so he was just going by his visuals, and in essence what happened is the plane took off, and they were at a slight bend the whole time, came back around, and crashed into the cliff, 
and everyone died instantly, just he and the pilot. And so just in a moment, everything changed. Well, my dad was in class, and he tells me that he remembers the sound, the sound of, of sirens down at the airport, Linda the same, his sister. They were wondering what it was all about. And then my grandma find, found out. Somebody found her. She was teaching as well, pulled her out of class. Uh, she got in her car. She drove over to the various places where my dad and my aunt were in class, and she pulled them out. And both of them, my dad and Linda both, recall the very first words out of my grandmother's mouth. She quoted scripture. In fact, she quoted Job chapter 1, verse 21. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In the midst of crisis, in the midst of her questions, in the midst of this situation, in the midst of being a single mother with two kids. Yes, they were a little more grown, but she still had work to do. And, and, and how's this going to work from here forward? In the midst of all of that, she claims scripture. She claims the sovereignty of God and says, I don't understand, but I know that we must continue to bless the name of the Lord. Because he sees things in ways that we don't see. He understands things in ways that we don't understand. And so I challenge you today, regardless of whatever exile experience you may find yourself in, think about Joseph. Think about his resolve. Think about the fact that God has a thousand ways to fulfill his plans and his purposes. And that someday, he will indeed have the last word. He does write the last chapter. And so with Joseph, with Job, with countless others, in the midst of our inability to understand, let's be resolved to serve the Lord with an undivided heart. Our dearest Heavenly Father, we thank you and we recognize again this morning that you have all things under control. There is no small detail in our life or our experience that goes past unnoticed by you. And though we may not understand, though we may not be able to make sense of a situation we may find ourselves, may we trust your sovereignty today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.